Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this passage. Thank you that we can gather here this morning to hear it, to respond to it. Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there is a uh, semi-well-known saying. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. You may be familiar with that. Now, on one level, uh, this, isn't a, uh, this isn't a particularly revolutionary statement, right? You know that if you leave a candle on a concrete driveway on a hot, sunny day in Darwin, what you'll end up pretty quickly with is a puddle, right? On the other hand, uh, those muddy four-wheel drive tracks that people love to, you know, get lost in and spend hours of recovering in because for some reason they like big sloppy messes and mud all over their four-wheel drives, well, those tracks in the dry season look a bit different, don't they? They're not as sloppy. So, these two different materials, the sun doesn't treat those things differently, does it? It's the wax and the clay that respond differently to the sun. And so it is with God and with our hearts. So let me ask you this morning, how do you respond to the sun? How do you respond to the sun? Our passage here this morning gives us two examples of this very phenomenon in people. And so as we dive into this morning, I pray that each of us will not have ears full of wax, but have hearts of wax. Let's begin with our first point. Naaman, wax. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we dove into the story of Naaman. He was a commander of Syria's army. He had also had leprosy, and he was told by a servant girl, a little Israelite servant girl, uh, who was serving his wife, about Elisha, a prophet in Israel, who, would have been able, who was able to heal him. And so despite initially being proud after he went to him and rejecting Elisha's instruction to wash in the Jordan seven times, he eventually obeyed thanks to some prodding by his servants and his skin was restored. You can read about that in the first half of chapter 5. But not only was Naaman's skin restored, he also was made clean. And so he was ceremonially ceremonially clean, and as we see even more clearly in this passage this morning, his heart was also clean. Let's read how he responds to this miracle in verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Here is the evidence of a changed life. Naaman brings his entire company, his, his chariots and his horsemen, his huge entourage, which we saw a couple of weeks ago. He brings them again to Elisha's house, but this time there's no showboating. There's no uh, sense of inflated self-importance. This time, 
Naaman stands before Elisha and he humbly utters a truth that has transformed and changed his life forever. Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. And we thought uh, Naaman, I don't know if you did, but I did, might have been clay by the way that he reacted at first. But here we see that he is actually wax. He has melted before the sun. He has surrendered to the Lord and he has recognized that there is no other God in all the world except the Lord who is in Israel. And once again, do you notice here how the conversation is all about this? Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Elisha uh, told the king to send Naaman to him so that, what? He may know that there is a prophet of Israel. Even though his presenting issue was his leprosy, Elisha's purpose was more than just to simply give him new skin. Naaman came all the way from Syria with a letter from the king. Intentionally, he, initially, his first goal was to be healed of his leprosy. But now, what does he thank God for? What does he thank Elisha for? Does he even mention the leprosy? Does he even mention his skin disease that he first was coming to him for? No. The thing that he thanks Elisha for primarily is the fact that he now has, he knows who God is. The entire focus of Naaman's interaction with Elisha from verses 15 to 19 is not about how great it is now that he doesn't have to live with the physical consequences or the social stigma of having leprosy. But now it is all about him being able to live a life for the Lord. This is what happens when the sun melts wax. A person realizes that all of life is all about God. We see it even in Naaman's attempt to show his gratitude to Elisha by offering him a present. You know, Naaman's not trying to buy him off. He might have when he first came. But now he doesn't have to. He got what he came for. And so this is, this is Naaman trying to say thanks to Elisha, to show him some gratitude for bringing him words of life and showing him who the true God is. And what Naaman brought with him, as we saw last time, was the equivalent of, of probably millions and millions of dollars worth of silver and gold and clothing. My Christian brothers and sisters, do you know that kind of gratitude for what the Lord has done in you? Perhaps you felt it when the Lord first saved you, does it continue? Do you gladly pour out your life, your time, and your resources to others out of thanksgiving because of the fact that God has saved you? That is one of the signs of a heart of wax. Well, Elisha's response is probably what we would expect. Let's read verse 16. He said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand... I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Again, we see here that the common oath used by the prophets and others throughout Israel's history, as the Lord lives, is a promise on him, on, on Yahweh's name. 
But here Elisha also adds this extra bit, before whom I stand. His predecessor Elijah also used it. And so to stand before someone is to recognize your submission to them, to recognize your inferiority before them. When you're summoned to the principal's office, you stand before them. And you realize that as a student, you are under authority. Naaman here stood before Elisha a moment earlier in humble reverence before him and before the Lord. And now Elisha, he makes it explicit that he stands before one who has final authority over him. And so this is a matter of faithfulness to the Lord. Elisha will not receive any such payment because God freely gives to those whom he desires to give. This is not to say that uh, Elisha didn't receive things from others for his ministry. We've seen that he accepted the Shunammite woman's hospitality. He received bread from the man from Baal Shalishah in the previous chapters. But I think because this was so clearly in response to the work of God in Naaman's life and because he was not an Israelite and this was a shadow of the great free gift of the gospel that God would send forth to all nations post-Jesus, Elisha refused any payment for such a gift. So Naaman urges him, but Elisha resists. And so Naaman moves on to his next order of business. Let's read from Verse 17. And Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship him, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. Naaman here is still a new believer. He doesn't know that the Lord is God over all creation and that sacrifices are more about the heart and not about the location. What he's trying to do is say, oh, when I go back, it's idolatrous territory. Can you please let me, you know, have some the good stuff? But, you know, this does raise an interesting and good point for us. When was the last time you interacted with someone who'd only recently turned from their sin and trusted in Christ? Were you slow and forgiving of the things that they didn't get right away? Brothers and sisters, let us be slow in our correction and patient in our instruction and loving in our understanding of new and young believers. All of us, even if you grew up in church and know a lot about the Bible, have had and continue to have periods of learning in the Christian life. And that ought to make us humble and patient as we seek to disciple and encourage our baby brothers and sisters. Plus, as I'm sure many of us have found, our baby brothers and sisters more often than not have much to teach us. And such is the case here with Naaman. 
Despite the fact that he wrongly assumes that the earth of Israel is somehow more sacred or somehow more special and that he needs it to worship the Lord rightly in his homeland, he certainly nails one thing. God hates idolatry. That's so clear in the second of the Ten Commandments. Naaman has figured that out fast. And he knows it's going to be a problem. As soon as he goes back and sets foot on home soil, he asks for a pardon from Elisha because he knows that he's going to have to bow before Rimon once he's back in the Syrian king's palace. Now, Rimon here is probably another play on words. Uh, one of the other Syrian names for their god, Baal, was actually Ramon. But the A has been changed to an I here, which gives it the meaning of pomegranate. Uh, it might be a coincidence. It might also be the authors of uh, Kings uh, making an, yet another clear sort of jab at the fact that there is no other God except the Lord, Yahweh. But the point is that Naaman is anticipating that he's going to have to do this when he goes back. And he is, after all, the king's right-hand man. That's what the phrase, leaning on my arm, likely means. He's not talking about the king, you know, necessarily actually leaning on his arm as he goes into the, uh, the temple. But that because he is in such high authority, he is the king's right-hand man. We see a couple of other instances of that in 2 Kings chapter 7, of the usage of that phrase. Naaman knows that when he goes back and he will have to bow before Rimon, he knows that that's wrong. And yet at this stage, he cannot see a way out of doing that. You can imagine being second in command over the whole nation. What would the implications be for no longer bowing before Rimon? And so he knows that Elisha is the guy that he needs to ask for pardon in this matter. So what does Elijah do? How does he respond? He says, go in peace. Go in peace. That is, again, that beautiful Hebrew word shalom there. Go with God's shalom, he says. That rich word that we've seen meaning a, a, a rightness in all of creation and all that is going on. He's basically telling Naaman that he will be right with God as he goes back, that God has granted his request. Now, for modern-day Christians, this can present a bit of a challenge for us, can't it? It would be easy for us to use this text to justify a practice of maintaining an inward faith while practicing an outward spirituality. An example of this uh, is what Nabil Qureshi describes in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, he talks about what's called the insider movement, uh, which is a movement amongst ministry to Muslims. Some Christian missionaries actually encourage Muslim converts to uh, not tell their families that they've become Christians, but instead to keep teaching the gospel with the connections that they have and without clearly saying that Jesus is God. Nabil himself actually disagrees with that, says that that is a wrong thing to do. And I actually think that he's right to say so, that such a practice actually hinders a Muslim from being able to take up their cross and follow Christ freely, despite 
the significant cost it might be for them. But this text gives us a more intimate look at how difficult such a situation is. So what do we do with that? How, how is it that we can say that, that this is not a text that we can use to justify such a practice? Well, this is why it's so important for us to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If we really do believe that the Bible will remain to the end of the world, the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested, which is what our statement of faith says, just in case you haven't read it recently, that is something for members of our church that you have signed and agreed to, then it is with Scripture itself that we need to test these ideas and to see whether they are true. And so can we justify the practice of hidden faith from this passage? Well, the first thing to note is that Elisha was a man of God who spoke the Word of God. And he's not just a man of God the way that many of us will use the term these days to talk about somebody who is spiritual. But he is a man of God in the sense that he is a unique prophet in the same order and line as Moses. And so when he says, thus says the Lord, you could bank on the fact that he was speaking on behalf of the Lord. You don't need to test that prophecy. You don't need to say, I'm I'm not sure whether he's actually saying God's words or not. No, his words were authoritative enough to become Scripture. They did become Scripture. And so if a Christian ever claims that their words today can be added to the Bible, then they are no longer a Christian. This is why we reject the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith did not have an extra revelation. And so Elisha has the kind of authority that could make this sort of pronouncement and give Naaman a pardon in his specific situation. And secondly, as mentioned before, the follower of Christ needs to at least grapple with the fact that Jesus calls us to count the cost of following him and to take up our crosses and follow him. He does that multiple times in the Gospels, like in Luke 14. And finally, we also need to wrestle with Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 8 which we preached on in our church several months ago, to not participate in any outward forms of idolatry, especially when we know that it will cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. And there are no doubt other things from the Bible for us to consider in seeking to make sense of what we make of this, but I think these are the most relevant. And so I would suggest to you that having an inner faith without outward expression is not something that we should encourage as Christians. Now, I'm certainly not saying that we should ignore the wrestle and the struggle of our Muslim or other friend who's considering Christianity but knows that the cost will be great. We certainly don't want to be insensitive to that. But I do think that as we have these conversations, and I pray that as a church we will have more and more of them, that understanding the significance of the cost of following Jesus and how that plays out are things that we cannot hide from. And ultimately, we must remember that the cost of following Christ is absolutely worth it. If that is not true for you, if, that, if you're not sure whether that's the case, if you're not sure whether you could tell a brother or sister and look them in the eye and say, it is going to be worth it no matter how high the cost. Continue 
to look deeply into the gospel and how great it is, all that Jesus has done. Some of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan currently and in many other places all over the world know this all too keenly. I saw last week that many Afghani Christians have said they want to live, that the threat on their life is, is great right now. And they want to live, but they are prepared to die. They understand the cost and they're willing and ready to pay it. They know the one in whom they trust. And so it should be with us. Are we prepared for whatever persecution might come our way as the followers of Jesus? Even if that leads to death. Do you stand before him knowing that he is the ultimate judge, that you ought to fear him who can destroy both body and soul, and that he alone can give you life? A heart of wax melts before God and turns to him knowing that he alone and no other is our hope. He alone is our pardon. Well, that same sun doesn't have the same effect on everyone. For others, it hardens them. And that brings us to point two. Gehazi is the clay. Now, to be clear from the outset, I can't say for sure whether Gehazi ended his life without true faith. I have a hunch, which I'll share with you a bit later. But it's possible that this is chronologically the last scene of Gehazi's life in the Bible. Because in Kings, the author isn't just giving a chronological recap of events in real time. His purpose is more than simply just recording history. He's actually explaining the cause of Israel's downfall and its exile. And so let's read from the second half of verse 19 about Gehazi. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. And Gehazi, he, he recognizes that Elisha's just let him get off scot-free. He's saying, what is this? You, Elisha, you radically changed the guy's life. He has got like camels and camels loads of cash and all sorts of treasures and he's ready and willing to pay you and you just let him ride off into the sunset? Seriously? Yeah, Gehazi just can't believe this. This would be like freeing the golden goose, you know, the goose that lays golden eggs from a trap and then just letting it off into the wild. Why would you do that? He sees the opportunity here, Gehazi, and he seizes it. His phrase, I will run, there is, is a, a way of um, emphasizing that he has resolved to do this. I will run and go. And do you notice what he says to himself before he takes off? As the Lord lives. That same oath that Elisha just made before. Is the same one that Gehazi makes in this situation. Look at the contrast between those two. This is a direct 
violation of the third commandment, which says that you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. While Elisha makes his oath in faithfulness to the Lord's will of refusing Naaman's payment, Gehazi does so in very clear and explicit unfaithfulness and greed. Brothers and sisters, let this be another solemn reminder for each of us and a warning of how seriously we need to take the things that we do in His name. To call yourself a Christian is to represent Christ. It is to represent the Lord. And so may we never be blasé about that. And so Gehazi, he makes this foolish oath and continues and goes. And in a scene very similar to that of his own interaction with the Shunammite woman in chapter 4, Naaman greets him with the question, Shalom, is all well? To which Gehazi replies, Shalom. I would have liked to have put the section from chapter 4 on the same slide, but there's just too much. So here you can see Gehazi's interaction with the Shunammite woman. Yet again, what another contrast between the two. As we saw a few weeks ago, while the Shunammite woman said, all is well, she said, shalom, with great faith in the Lord. Well, Gehazi, he's saying it here in anticipation of a huge payday. He's thinking, I am going to be rich. And so he goes on in verse 22 to spin a false story that seeks to exploit Naaman's generosity by saying that they've had a couple of drop-ins from the neighboring, neighboring province of Ephraim. And of course, as we'd now expect of Naaman, he generously gives. Not only does he grant Gehazi's request to have a talent of silver, but he also urges him to take double the amount of silver than what we asked for. As we saw last week, two talents is enough to buy a plot of land for a city. That's a lot of money. And not only that, he, he then also lends him a couple of servants to carry the load back for him. I mean, requiring two servants to carry, that's a, a lot of cash. And of course, as we would now expect, having seen all of this, in verse 24, we see Gehazi not wanting to get caught. So he sends the servants away before they get to the house because he knows that Elisha would get suspicious if he saw them. Just look at the contrast of what's on display before us here. On the one hand, here is a foreigner, Naaman, who's had to ask for a pardon from the Lord because of the idol-worshipping people that he's about to go back to, displaying the kind of selfless generosity that should be a mark of God's people, and on the other hand, Gehazi, a servant of the Lord's lead prophet, one who has seen firsthand more miracles performed and more prophetic words spoken to kings and to others than probably anyone else before him. Even the prophecy of a miraculous birth to an Abraham and Sarah-like couple where the man was too old to have kids. And then the, the fulfillment of that prophecy in a son who is given to them. And then the miraculous raising of that dead son. 
Here is a guy who really couldn't be any closer to true religion and genuine spirituality if he wanted to be. And now here he is, walking off with dirty money that he has acquired through lies and deceit. As far as exposure to the sun, Gehazi certainly has had more of it. And yet the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Friends, it does not matter whether you have grown up in a Christian home or not, whether you've spent many years in church or not, or whether you've, you've even spent many years teaching the Bible and being a leader in church or not. What matters is whether you have heard that word, whether you have realized that God is holy, as Isaiah saw in his vision of God in Isaiah 6, as we read earlier, and whether you can say like him, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Gehazi had the knowledge. He knew who the Lord was. He knew that the Lord was real and that He was the only true God. Yet his heart was hard. Let's read from verse 25. He went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, Male servants and female servants. In a scene that looks very much like Genesis chapter 3, when God asks Adam and Eve where they are after they've eaten from the forbidden tree, so Elisha asks the same of Gehazi. Where have you been? As we know from verse 26, Elisha knows where he's been, just as God knew where Adam and Eve were. But here he's giving Gehazi an opportunity to recognize his sin, to face it, and to repent. One of the things that I keep telling my kids when they're tempted to lie in order to avoid punishment is that lying will result in an even worse punishment. Well, for me. And that even if a lie lets them get away with whatever it is that they did, even if they somehow manage to pull it off, that there would always be one who sees everything that they do. And it is what he sees that matters the most. And I try to encourage them to see a lie as not just something that breaks down trust between me and them, which it absolutely does, 
but also as something that will, if they are not careful, bit by bit, speck of dust by speck of dust, harden their hearts. Are you tempted to hide from God? Are you tempted to try and cover up your sin and to make yourself presentable before Him? Friends, He knows you. He knows me far more than we can even know ourselves. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot slip, slop, slap, sit under the shade in order to avoid His piercing light and heat. Such an exercise is futile. You cannot avoid standing before the sun. But you can avoid hardening your heart. Gehazi, tragically, had hardened his heart. His lust for the world and the treasures of it had so filled his heart with greed that he forgot whom he was standing before. And so now here he is, standing before Elisha, the same way Naaman and his men did, but with a completely different posture before God. Even though he was aware of God, even though he knew the truth about God, he did not fear God. He did not reverence Him. He did not love Him. This is what God had warned His people about in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. God warns them that after they enter the land of promise and receive the blessings of land and live in prosperity, that they must not forget Him. That they are to continue to fear Him, to serve Him, and to represent Him. And this is, of course, part of Elisha's rebuke to Gehazi. He says, this isn't a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards, servants, etc. To be greedy and to have lustful eyes for the things of this world. Greed is an ever-present temptation. And such such a temptation is certainly always very present in our lives. In the rich West, this has got to be one of the biggest blind spots we have. And Tim Keller tells a great story about when he gave a series of talks on uh, the seven deadly sins. And uh, when he told his wife that the next day's session uh, was going to be on greed, she said to him, oh, you watch, that'll be the least attended. And she was right. (laughs) To his surprise. I think that's true because climbing the social ladder and moving up in the world is such a normal part of our lives. It's so interwoven into the fabric of our culture that we're so easily blinded to our own greed. We don't even think it's a problem that we struggle with. Or if we do, at the very least, we pay little attention to it. Do you recognize the signs 
of greed growing in your life? Do you recognize the signs of greed growing in your life? How significant a factor is the money that you will earn when you're thinking about what career you want to pursue? Is it more important than the impact that you might have for God's kingdom in your vocation? What possession that you currently have or that you would like to have would cause you to unravel if you lost it? I understand that this can be difficult for us to discern because it is ever so present in our lives. It is a great challenge to discern what it is, when, when it is that we step over the line into greed. And this is why I think that greed is something that we ought to actually talk more about as Christians. You see, as Christians, we, we often talk about being accountable to one another as an expression of our love for God and our desire to grow in holiness. And so we often do this in many areas of sin that we struggle with. But tell me, when was the last time you invited accountability from a trusted brother or sister in Christ for how you spend your money? Are you willing to push past that that social taboo of money being a a private thing that we, we don't talk about for the sake of your own sanctification? Brothers and sisters, Greed is a serious sin. If you haven't picked that up yet from this passage, please do. It was the downfall of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. It was the downfall of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. It was the downfall of countless multitudes of people since in history. And it was, most likely, the downfall of Gehazi. If you're willing to fight lust with accountability software, why wouldn't you seek accountability in this too? I pray that our church would be one for its generosity, would be known as one for its generosity and its lack of attachment to the things of this world and to a lack of its striving for them. Do not let the lure of money and of worldly possessions slowly harden your heart. Recognize the signs of it in your life and resist. You see, Gehazi stood before a holy God without realizing that he should have been standing there with fear and trembling. You can be around Christianity, you can be surrounded by Christianity, you can even be immersed in Christianity so much that you teach it. And you can still have a hard heart. What about you? Is your heart wax or clay? That brings us to our final point. I'm not really sure how to vocalize it, so just write it down as you see it on the screen. Let's read verse 27. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. 
Now, just a, a side note here at the beginning, the idea of generational sin that stops a person from being able to be saved by Jesus is not what this is talking about. And when Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed, he means it. If that's something you want to talk about, feel free to ask later. And nonetheless, what we see here is Gehazi's judgment. The judgment on his hard heart is that the leprosy that once clung to Naaman now clings to him and to his descendants. And does this mean that Gehazi was also condemned eternally? As I mentioned before, this is possibly the final chronological event in the Bible that we see. Gehazi does pop up again in chapter 8, but I think it's a very reasonable uh, assumption that that event happened before this. One of the reasons I think that is because it's very unlikely that a king would allow a leper in his presence. So the fact that Elisha declares that the leprosy will not only cling to him, but also his descendants, it makes us think again about God's declarations of the sin of the fathers being passed onto the third and the fourth generation in Exodus 20 and in Numbers 14. And I think that seems to indicate to us that this is probably Gehazi's final judgment. I mean, either way, this serves as a reminder to us of the holiness of God and of His judgment. And it serves as a shadow of the judgment that is to come. If you think that leprosy is a pretty severe punishment for Gehazi's sin, you know, when all he wanted was just a bit of cash and he was probably a pauper living a you know, prophetic servant's wage or whatever, it is nothing compared to the hell that awaits us all if we do not repent. You know, these days there are many public voices coming out to say that they have deconstructed their faith. They often call, uh, they're often called ex-evangelicals because they're no longer evangelical Christians. That is, they're no longer people who believe in the gospel as it is presented in the Bible. And sadly, one of the things that many ex-evangelicals try to claim is that the God who sends people to hell for eternity as punishment for their sin, that God is a malicious God and He doesn't deserve our worship. And ironically, you know, they, they say, I prefer the God of the New Testament. I prefer Jesus, who's loving and merciful and kind and gracious, without realizing that Jesus himself speaks very often about judgment. And he does not mince words. Luke 12:5 is one such passage. It's incredibly relevant. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Friend, if you're here this morning, and if your heart is hard, if you stand before the Lord, the one true God, without fear, thinking that you know better than him, then I urge you, do not delay. Do not delay in standing before him in fear and in humble reverence. The holiness of God is so pure that even in his judgment of your sin, he is doing right. 
He is not putting a foot wrong. You might think to yourself, well, I don't want to believe in a God that I just want to live in fear of. And actually, I agree with you. And this is why the gospel is such good news. The good news of the gospel is that God's holiness is not the sum total of who He is. His holiness is also a gracious and a loving holiness. That is why John 3.16 is such good news. It's why John 1.16 tells us that we have received from Jesus grace upon grace. And that is why I love the second verse to Amazing Grace, which says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved.'" How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. How does grace teach you to fear? It teaches you that there is a God who is holy and wrathful and before whom one day you will stand to be judged for your sin. God's grace teaches you that the problem of your sin is a sickness far worse than any kind of physical sickness you may potentially experience. It teaches you that you need a cure for that more than anything. But how does grace relieve those fears? It reminds you over and over again that when, the t- when you turn from your sin and when you believe in Jesus and put your trust in Him, when you look to Him and see the One who was the spotless Lamb, when you see that He went to the cross for your sin and that He now stands before God on your behalf and receives that wrath unto Himself, you see that now those fears are relieved. use the imagery and language of this passage, it's like our leprosy has been transferred onto Him so that we can walk away clean. Even though He was the one who lived a perfect life, even though He is the one who said it's not the healthy but the sick who need a doctor in Mark 2.17, even though He was spotless, He had no sin, He received our spots so that we might be clean, so that we might walk away clean. Because in reality, it's us who are Gehazi, isn't it? We are the ones who continue to lust after the world and in our greed and seek worldly things rather than a good God. It's us who deserve the judgment. And yet He is good in giving us salvation. Friends, take care that you, like so many ex-evangelicals in our world, you start to think that God is not good in His judgment. Or that you'd be able to stand before Him 
and say proudly to his face that you have a better grip on what is good and what is good for you. Take note and be aware of what the light of the sun is doing to your heart. Do you find that when you come to know more about God, that when the Holy Spirit shines a light on your own sin in your life, that you begin to melt before Him? Or do you find that you have the tendency to harden your heart and harden those tracks that you've driven on for so long? To be sure, I think that those who have walked away were never Christians to begin with. And there's more to be said about that that I can't say right now. But these are the signs of the difference between wax and clay. A genuine believer, even when faced with the shame and ugliness of their own sin, even in their struggle to believe, when confronted with truth from Scripture, that is difficult at first, melts before the sun. The genuine believer responds by standing before God, pleading the blood of Jesus and trusting in Him alone for salvation. Let me finish with a quote from Herman Bavik, Bavink, a very influential theologian from the 19th century. Despite all of his brilliance, despite his incredible influence, despite all of his knowledge, despite all of his wonderful understanding of the doctrine of God, he said this on his deathbed. My learning does not help me now. Faith alone saves me. Brothers and sisters, will you stand before the sun and will you let him melt away your love for the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand before you. You are the King of glory. You are a holy God. And yet in the warp and woof of our daily lives, we so often forget this truth. And so, Father, we ask that you would melt away our hearts, melt away our love for the world, so that we might have hearts of flesh that love you, that desire you above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.